All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Thomas. If this is your first time here. We're glad you could join us here today. Uh, right now, we are going through a sermon series called The Journey of Faith, because here at our church, we believe that the Bible describes faith not as this event, not as this decision, but it's actually a journey that God takes us on. And we often don't know like, where God is leading us, like how do you grow, how do you really mature spiritually, and it's often ambiguous, churches are often ambiguous of what that looks like. And so for us, we try to provide a spiritual map to let us know what the landmarks are of growth. And it's on the screen here. Uh, we, we believe that there are, uh, just generally speaking, six stages where the Lord leads us, and it's not linear, it's not like you have to go through every single stage in that exact order, but this is generally this rhythm that we feel a lot of Christians have gone through when they try to follow Jesus. And each stage, it's unique in its beauty, it's unique in its struggles, uh, but it's nice to know where you are at, and most especially to know how do you move forward. Last week, we went through stage one, which is a recognition of God, where for most people who want to know who Jesus is, there's a moment where we just recognize that there's more to this world, that there's a God behind all of it, and that there's a God who also forgives us and offers us grace through Jesus Christ. And last week, we went through what that looks like and how we experience that. Today, though, we're going to look at stage two, which is what's called the life of discipleship. And so to look at what that stage looks like, we are going to be looking at the gospel of Mark at chapter eight, verse 34. It should be in your programs, or if you have your Bibles, you can turn there as well. And as you turn there, here at our church, we believe when we read the Bible and the scriptures, we believe our God is alive and living. And so as we read this, can we all rise together? So this is Mark chapter eight, verse 34. So Mark writes for us, Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he, referring to Jesus, said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, we invite your spirit to just be here to stir in our hearts and for you, O Lord, to convict and to move and to ultimately transform your people who are here today. We lift up this time to you in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you are, imagine you're meeting a married couple and this is your first time meeting them and you're eating a meal together. What do you typically ask that married couple? What's a question that you would often pose? If you're like me, the question that most people ask is, oh, how did you two meet? What made you guys fall in love with each other? Why did you guys get married? My wife and I, if we were eating, that married couple eating dinner with you, uh, we would respond by saying, oh, this is our story, very brief. My wife and I met through a mutual friend. And the reason why we actually started to like each other was actually for many reasons. Uh, when we met each other, man, did we have so many similarities, like so many things in common to the point where my wife would always say, oh my goodness, we're like, tw- we're twinsies. Like, we're just like twins. And I'm like, yeah, we are. 
when we would talk, like we really enjoyed our conversations. Like it was like, remember like those times if you experience this where you talk to somebody and it's like till 2 a.m., 3 a.m. and like these deep conversations that are just there. Like man, like we really enjoyed and had like rich conversations all the time. And we had a lot of fun. Like we go out, we go to DMVs, we go to the movies. Like we just really enjoyed each other's company. And that's how my wife and I, how we met. That's how we got attracted to each other. And that's ultimately how we got married. And so even though a lot of us were kind of familiar with stories like that, because again, we ask, how did you get together? You know what's a question that not many people ask us? Not how did you get together, but what makes you stay together? How did you stay together as a married couple? My wife and I, we've been married for over 11 years now. And the reasons for us getting together and the reason for us staying together, totally different. We are not twinsies. Like, not at all. Like, we are so dissimilar. Like, the more I got to know her, I'm like, you're different. Like, we just don't get each other at all. Well, our conversations, man, we do not talk to 2 a.m. every night. I don't think we did that since the college days. Like, we just don't do that. In fact, having a intentional conversation as a married couple, it's hard. We don't really experience that that often. And not only that, like, it's hard to have fun. It's really hard to make space to have fun together. I don't remember the last time we went to DMVs. We have kids, we're tired, we have work. And so for us, the reason why we stay together, it's actually really different than why we got together. The reason why we stay together, it's not because we love each other. The reason why we're still together is because we are committed to loving each other. Big difference. Right now for us, we are still committed, even though we're not twinsies, we are committed to try to be twinsies. We are always, when we've noticed differences, let's talk about those differences. Let's figure out those differences. Let's not sweep it under the rug. Let's go through it. For us, it's not easy having intentional conversations. Very easy just to let the day go by and watch Netflix. But we make space to like, hey, let's talk. How are things going? Let's get intentional with each other. And we try our best to have some type of fun together. Shout out to the babysitting ministry. We're going to have even more fun where we just try to go out just on a date between her and I. Because again, it's not easy. It doesn't naturally happen. We have to be committed to these things. And so what helps us together, it's not this sense of compatibility or connectivity or activities. But again, we're just committed to just practicing this together. And I know if, when you hear this, if you're younger, man, does this sound terribly unromantic, right? This sounds like, oh my gosh, that marriage doesn't really sound that spicy or that interesting. But just know us older people who've been married a long time, we look at that and it's actually, it's called maturity. That's what it's called. It's a mature type of love because the only way a true intimate relationship can last is if you don't just love each other, but you make a commitment to show that love to each other. I love the way New York Times writer David Brooks puts it. It's on the screen. He says it like this. The most complete definition of a commitment is this. Falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. If your love is purely emotive, it will fall in and out, in and out. But true love is a committed love and you build a structure to make sure that they're just practicing love with one another. And that's how people stay together. So given that, let me ask you another question. How did you become a Christian? When did you become a Christian? What made you become a Christian? I feel like if you think about that question, you might think, 
oh, like back in high school, I remember this youth rally I went to, this retreat, this altar call. Or maybe you think in college, there was like this season where like the gospel just became really real to me. And so we kind of point to like this moment or this season in life. And when you think about that, what you're actually experiencing, which is on the, on the screen here, is stage one. Well, not announcements. <laughs> there should be stage one there. But anyways, uh, it's actually stage one in our lives, the recognition of God. For us here, this is when we realize how good God is, the grace offered in Jesus Christ. And again, I think if you're a Christian, you probably had that story. But here's a question. Well, why are you still Christian, though? Are you still Christian just because of that moment? You just point back to, I'm still a Christian because of high school, because of college. Why are you still a Christian? When was the last time you recognized the goodness of God? Will you recognize his grace in your life? Here's a problem, I think, for a lot of us here. You go from stage one, and you just jump down to stage three. You're a Christian now? Oh, we have this education ministry. Go serve there. Oh, you're a Christian now? Oh, you should serve in youth ministry. Oh, you're a Christian? You should join the praise team. And what happens is we go from recognizing God to all of a sudden serving, becoming this Christian leader, this campus leader. And man, when you keep doing that, do you get tired? You get like, like really tired. You burn out. You don't know what's going on because you're just serving, 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 and you're running off the fuel of that high school retreat. You're running off the fuel of your college days, and boy, do you get tired, and you just really don't know if you can move forward after that. And what happens is for a lot of us, your faith is withering. It's withered. And this is where I find it interesting when you read the Gospels. When you read the Gospels in the Bible and you see Jesus, the way he interacts with people, what's really interesting, when he invites people to come to him, he doesn't go, hey, come and believe in me. That's not the main way he invites people to him. Nor does he say, come and serve me. That is not the main way either. What does Jesus always say? Come and follow me. Follow. This is the repeated theme of Jesus when he invites people to him. For example, Mark chapter 1, verse 17. Jesus said to his first disciples, come and not believe in me, but follow me. In Mark chapter 2, verse 14, when he runs into the tax collector, Jesus said, it says, Jesus saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, not serve me, but what? Follow me. In Mark chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus, he runs to the rich young ruler, and he says to him, sell all that you have, and then what? Come follow me. Because life with Jesus, it is not a moment in your life. It's not meant to be a season. It's not even meant to be just a decision. The life with Jesus is this lifelong commitment to following him. That's what it looks like. It begins with Jesus coming to you, dying on your behalf for your sins, forgiving you for what you have done. But we respond not just by believing it, not just by repenting, but now we follow him. That's what life with Jesus looks like. And so today, this is what we're going to do. We are going to look at what does it look like to go from stage one to stage two? What does it look like, in other words, to follow Jesus? And personally, this is the main reason I think for a lot of us here, we're not really feeling like we're flourishing spiritually. A lot of us here, we think the reason why we're struggling spiritually is we've hit that wall. Like we are just, you know, facing ourselves and we just need to do this deep dive into like who we are. But the reality is it could be you just never experienced consistently stage two in your life. You've never experienced a life of discipleship. It could be that this just was never there. You never had a season of deep prayer. You hear about people who like had a season of prayer or scripture and you don't know what that they're talking about. You just went and served. Or for some of you, you're, you did that, but man, did you do it in this deformative, legalistic way that just gave you zero life? 
And so what I want to do today is I want to just to emphasize, you just cannot grow in spiritual maturity until stage two is really present in your life right now. Not in the past, right now, it's there. You're just going to feel stuck and you're going to blame other things, but in reality, what it means is you actually need desperately a life of discipleship to learn what it means to follow Jesus. And we're going to talk about what this looks like in three ways. Number one, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Secondly, why should we follow Jesus? And then last, how do we practice following Jesus? So what does it mean? How sh- why, why should we follow and how do we practice it? First, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Imagine you come to our church, and then when you come to our church, you see somebody sitting in the front. They're dressed nicely. You don't know who this person is. They're wearing a microphone like this. And then all of a sudden, you see them go up to the stage, and they're carrying a Bible, and they're about to speak. What would you presume who this person is, even though you know zero context? Probably the pastor, right? Probably, a, at the very least, a guest preacher, you would just imagine he's some type of minister and that's why he's doing and that's why he's appearing the way he's appearing. Because we all grew up in the church and we just know that's kind of how it is. Or for a lot of us, we grew up in the church and that's how it is. But for a lot of us here, if, if we met Jesus, you know, we just have this definitions that we imported upon him. Like, oh, he's God, he's Messiah. But think back in Mark chapter eight, like at this point in time, like who is Jesus to the people? Like if they met Jesus, like what category would they place him in? He's a person who's, he's a Jew, He's walking around, he's in his mid-30s, he's teaching the Torah, giving his own interpretation about it. If you're a first century Jew and you encounter Jesus for the first time, you would think, oh, category, he's a rabbi. He's a, he's a Jewish teacher. In fact, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, when people talk to Jesus, and it's about 90 times in the New Testament that people talk to him, 60 of those times he's called rabbi. Because that was their definition, their category of who Jesus is. And so when Jesus, if you meet this person, he goes, hey, come, follow me. What he's actually doing is, is he doing something that the, every rabbi does? Because this is what the first century, rabbis, they do this thing where they say, come, follow me. And pretty much what he's implying is, be my Talmudim. This Greek word Talmudim, what it actually is, it's this word disciple. It's on the screen up there, Talmudim. And everybody will get it right away. Because in the first century, if you were a Jew... There were three levels of education that every Jewish person went through and everybody knew it. It's like today, you just know you go to elementary school, then you do middle school, then high school and so forth. Back then in the first century, there was also those standards as well, but it's a little bit different than today. And here are the three levels. The first one level is called, it's called Beit Sefer. It's on the screen. And this is uh, translated as the house of the book. Pretty much just imagine your kids, instead of going to elementary school, what happened is they would be taught in this classroom or in some type of setting that's there. It's usually around starting age four. And at age four, what they would do is they would study and memorize the Torah. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. At age four, they start memorizing it. If you're 44, you struggle even reading it. But back then, they memorized that thing. And that was their education all the way up to age 13. Because at age 13, what would happen is if you were, if you were a girl, you, always, you would get married off. I know, very, uh, very backwards, very you know, opposite. It's not really modern, but that's just how it was in the first century. You would get married if you were a 13-year-old teenage girl. But if you were a boy, you would start learning your father's craft. You become a, if your dad's a farmer, he teaches you to become a farmer. If he's an ironsmith, you become an ironsmith. And your education ends. But what happens is, Amongst that group of kids, the smartest people, the ones who show the most promise, they actually would continue their education and they go to the second stage, which is called the Talmud. And this is translated the house of learning. 
And what this was, was you have a group of teenagers, ages 13 to 15. And what they do is they go to the side building in the synagogue. There's a little building next to the synagogue. And they would learn from a trained rabbi. And the rabbi, what he would do is he would teach these boys the rest of the Old Testament, the writings and the prophets. They'd even memorize the rest of the Old Testament. And that was their education throughout their teenage years. And for most people in the first century, if you're a Jew, your education ended there. But the best of the best, like the top 1%, like, you know, that person who just like, they just are so much promise. They go to this final stage where they become a Talmudim, which is our word for disciple. A Talmudim, what they would do is now the students, they find a rabbi. They seek out a famous rabbi and the rabbi will interview this student the rabbi would just grill them about the Torah, about the writings, about the prophets. They'd make sure that this person know his stuff. And most of the times they would reject this person from being a Talmudim. But if you had enough smarts and you had enough promise to be able to show potential, what the rabbi will do is he will tell you, come follow me. That's what the rabbi would do. And to be a Talmudim, it's not Monday, Wednesday, Friday class that you go to. That's not the way it works. You would leave home. You would pack your things for a season of time. You would share life with this rabbi where you would eat with him. You would sleep in the same lodging as he does. You would travel with him. Think Star Wars. It's like a Jedi with his young Padawan. They are just going on all these adventures together. Because the goal of being a Talmudim was not to simply learn from your rabbi. The goal was to imitate and become like your rabbi. That was the goal. And when this is the cultural context of the first century period that we're reading Mark, it adds a whole new dimension to what it means when Jesus invites people to come follow him. In verse 34, look what he says. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow me, if anybody wants to be my Talmudim, Jesus is not inviting them. If anyone agrees with me, if anybody wants to learn even from me, what he's saying, if anybody wants to become like me, that's what he's doing. Come follow me. It's the difference between if you know somebody who wants to be a surgeon and you decide to go to med school. Med school is intense. But if you talk to anyone in med school, you'll know like the part that's really hard, it's not med school. It's residency. Residency is crazy. Because in med school, what happens is you are learning about what it means to be a surgeon. Residency, you are becoming a surgeon. And imagine in residency, if the surgeon general is like, hey, I'm gonna just I'm gonna mentor you. Be be my be someone who I just you just shadow. What happens? If you're being mentored by that person and you're copying everything he does, you are gonna become just like that surgeon. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. That is his invitation. And Jesus, he lets us know what this residency looks like. He says, hey, I'm not just going to keep you blind. There are three things that this residency is going to entail. Look what it says in verse 34 again. Jesus says, if anyone's to follow after me, what does he say? Let him, one, deny himself. Two, take up his cross. Three, follow me. This word deny is the same word that is used where, it's, where Peter denies Jesus later on in the Gospels. Pretty much it's like a disassociation. Like I have nothing to do with that person. Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to be resident with me, you got to disassociate from yourself. Like your relationship with yourself is going to be totally different than it was before. Take up your cross. I know for a lot of us, we think, you know, oh, I, I failed my final. Man, I'm carrying my cross. Like that is such a modern view of what the cross is. At this time and period, the cross meant you die. Excruciating death. And Jesus is like, yeah, 
that's what it takes to follow me. You're going to feel like you might die because your old self is going to die and there's a new self that's going to come along. And then he says, and come follow me. The way you used to go and used to walk is going to be totally different. A brand new direction is going to be required for you to be my Talmudim. If you've been in part of residency, you'll feel like, wow, this sounds just like medical residency. You die to yourself. You have to take up your cross. You have to do something different. That's exactly right. It's, it's intense. And if that's the case, there's a couple of things to consider if this is what Jesus' call is. One thing to consider is this. This invitation to follow Jesus, that means it is far more than simply identifying as a Christian. Oftentimes, on like my social media profiles or when people talk to me, I rarely put Christian anymore. Not because I'm not a Christian, but that term Christian has just been hijacked by the modern culture, especially in the OC. Because what do you mean when you say you're a Christian? When you say you're a Christian, and if you don't believe me, just go online dating. Look at all the people who put Christian. It means nothing. It means nothing. Because for a lot of us, this is what the profile means. If you're a Christian, you agree with the basics of Christianity. Yeah, I believe there's Jesus and God and heaven and hell. You go to church occasionally, and you're a semi-moral person. And that's how we think of Christian. It's like this label or this identity marker that we adopt. And in fact, the word Christian, it actually only how many times it appears in the Bible itself? Three times. It appears three times, and it's usually used in a negative way. I'm not saying you shouldn't call yourself a Christian, but it does something to the psyche when you kind of just see this as like this label for you. I actually like the term a lot more disciple or follower of Jesus, because that's actually the term that the Bible uses the most. It's used 268 times in the New Testament. Because that word follower of Jesus, what that implies, it's not just this identity marker. It implies you're doing something. Like there's this activeness that's there. Because to be a Christian... And to not activate and do something through faith, that is actually totally not a category for New Testament writers. They wouldn't know what to do with that. Today, we are so used to the idea, like, I'm a Christian, but I haven't gone to church in five years. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I just do my own thing. That makes zero sense to the New Testament writers. Because this is basically what you're saying, if, if that's their definition. You're saying this. Next slide. You're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus who doesn't follow Jesus. That makes zero sense to the New Testament. But that's how a lot of us here function. I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't have time to follow Jesus. Or I'm too tired to follow Jesus. It is an oxymoron that a lot of us had just adopted in the OC, but it's something that the call of Jesus really challenges. Here's a second thing that we should consider too. This invitation of Jesus to follow Jesus, it does not work as a hobby you cannot treat it like pickleball. You can't treat it like this ping pong craving or fantasy football. It does not work that way. The evil one's attacking us right there with that fly. But anyways, it does not work that way. Um, for a lot of us here, hobbies doesn't require a lot of commitment. And what to call it Jesus, it's actually this life-changing thing that you have to do. You could play baseball as a hobby, but try to become a baseball player, dude, you gotta change your life. Like practice matters. You could study medicine. Like my daughter, she's like, oh, I want to be a nurse. Like, oh, we give her like the little books and to read. But dude, if she really wants to study medicine and become a doctor, like dude, her life has to change. You could date for fun. Yeah, you could date for fun. That's all good. But if you want to get married, dude, things have to change. And similarly, when Jesus says, come follow me, that doesn't mean you quit your job. That doesn't mean you become a missionary. You become like a pastor. But what it does mean is now the focal point of your life has to change. You don't do residency and nothing changes. Something has to drastically shift in your life. 
That's what it means to follow Jesus. And here's the last thing to consider about Jesus' invitation. You don't have to do it. You don't have to take his invitation. Look what it says in verse 34 again. If anyone wants to follow after me, he's just inviting you. He's not saying you have to. He's not your Asian parents saying, oh, you better go. Like, he's not doing that. He said, no, if you want to, let me tell you what it's going to be like. But it's just an open invite for a lot of us. And I think for a lot of us, that's, that's actually should be really freeing. Uh, I talk, when I do premarital counseling, I always tell the, 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 the couples, like, hey, you know marriage? I'm like, I, I mean, you guys know this, before, I said this before. I'm like so discouraging. Like, you know, marriage is hard. Like, you might want to die. Like, you know what the divorce rate is? And marriage? I go like hard on, the, on this couple. And at the end of every session, I always ask them, you don't have to do this. Do you want to do this? Like, you don't have to. Because what I'm trying to do is I want to make it as clear as possible. I'm not sure if it's just me trying to like get rid of any guilt if things don't work out. But like I'll make it as clear as possible. Dude, this is marriage. And you can opt out right now. This is not like the first century where you, it has a prearranged marriage where your parents are forcing you. That's not what this is today. You have a choice. You don't have to do this. But if you do this, know what it is and accept it. Because that's what marriage is. Jesus is doing the same thing. You don't have to go to church. You really don't. It's your choice. You don't have to follow Jesus. This is not a prearranged marriage that you have with Jesus. There is no coercion on his part. It's up to you, but Jesus wants to make it really clear. If you do follow him, this is what it is. None of this, I follow Jesus, but I don't follow him. No, 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 no. This is what it means to follow Jesus, and it's up to you to decide what you want to do. And so, quick question before we move on. Are you a person where, yeah, you believe in Jesus? You even agree with Jesus, but you're not following him? Are you a follower who isn't following? Again, many of us, you grew up in the church, and it's almost like this thing that you feel like you have to do. And again, I just really want to emphasize you don't have to do it. But don't do the opposite thing where you are like, you know, I just have to. And so, no, no, Jesus does not give you that option. It's not just, I just believe in grace. No, no, no. The package is you follow him. And maybe for a lot of us, that's why our faith feels so dead. Because your faith, it is like this arranged marriage. And you're just like obligated to be here. And Jesus is like, man, you, have, you don't even understand the invitation. And that begs the question, so then why should we follow Jesus? Man, if it's like denial and cross and dying, like who would even accept his invitation? That leads to the second point. Why should I follow Jesus? Jesus tells us three things happen if you follow him. It's not just blindly follow. He's not just painting the cost, but he tells you, oh, these three things, keep following me. And slowly three things, you gain these three things from following Jesus. Here are the three. Number one is this. You gain a new identity. A new identity. In verse 35, look what Jesus says in, in, in verse 35. He tells them, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Very famous passage, paradoxical, purposely. And it's almost like, well, what's Jesus trying to say here? And the key word is actually this word life. What does he mean by life? Does he mean your physical life? Does he mean like your mental life? Like, what's he talking about? The Greek is really helpful here. It's this Greek word called suke. And the word suke, what that means in the Greek, it's not just your, it's not your physical body, your physical life. It's not even like your soul. When you think of soul, you think of like the movie soul and something apart from you. What suke actually refers to is like the deepest, truest part of yourself. 
who you really are. When we meet you right here on Sunday, you're kind of, it's a part of yourself. When you're with friends, it's a deeper part of yourself. But when you are with the safest, closest people in your life and the real you just comes out, that's suke. Jesus is talking about that. And Jesus is saying, you could lose that. A lot of people, you just don't even know, but you are losing your true self, the realest, deepest part of you. It could get lost. How? Look at the next verse, verse 36. He says, for what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? I like the way the message Bible actually translates it. In verse 36, it says this on the screen. He says, what good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? In other words, how do you lose the real you? You search and find things in the world and you build your life around that. And that might be you, but it's not the real you. It's not the truest you. You're losing that when you do it. James Balby, he's a psychiatrist. He's kind of, he's someone in the 1940s where he did this research where he observed kids who spent time away from their parents because what happened in the 1940s is they, would, they had tuberculosis. So the parents would have to drop off their kids in this environment and they'd leave. It sounds a lot like Sunday, Sunday education. We just drop off our kids and we just leave our kids and they're just out on their own. The kids are crying. But except back in the 40s, they drop them off for like eight hours. So you have these young infants just left with like these people who they don't know. And he observed amongst these children what happens is when the, the kid first gets dropped off, that first week they just go crazy. They start crying, they get angry, they throw tantrums and so forth. What happens is slowly after another few weeks, these kids, they started to become what he calls despair. They got really quiet. They just kind of are to themselves. And then eventually after a few weeks, what happens is these kids, they get slowly detached, where all of a sudden now they're playing with toys, they're a little more alive, they're playing with friends, and it seems like they're getting better. But what's weird is when the mom comes, when she first would come that first week, the kid would go crazy, going, mom, and just get really angry. But this towards the end, the kids, they look at their mom and just turn away. They have no desire to go to their mom. They're just playing with their toys. And Balbi, he, when he observed this, he realized that, oh, these kids, what they're doing is they're replacing their relationship for things. They're replacing their mom for toys because their mom, they can't bank on them. They're always leaving them. And their mom was their source of intimacy. So they are transferring that source of intimacy to other friends and to toys. And that's why for a lot of us, even though those are kids, we do that today. Addiction, it's so hard to break for people, not because you like the thing that you're doing, but it, that substance is replacing something that you are seeking to replace, intimate relationships. That's, what, that's just what people do. And the problem is, the Bible says that we were actually made for deep intimacy, intimacy with God. But sin broke us, where we are separated from God, and now we are just searching throughout the world to fill our lives. And you are enslaved to what people call the domination of wanting. You want that person. You want that job. You want that status. You want that property. And when you don't get it, or you get it and you lose it, you feel like your life is falling apart because you have built your life, your truest self, onto things of this world. And Jesus says you are losing yourself when you do this. And that's why he tells us, verse 35, what should you build your life upon? Me and what? The gospel. The gospel is a reconciled relationship with God. You were built for intimacy with him, and only that will free you from that domination of wanting. And ironically, you become way happier. So you gain a new identity. Keep following Jesus. This is a new identity. Secondly, not only do you gain a new identity, but follow Jesus, and he tells us you gain a new agenda. There's a new agenda for your life. Do you know why Jesus is even given this speech? Like, why is he even teaching about this? Something happened right before this. In chapter 9, verse 31, uh, Peter, or Jesus was saying, I'm the Messiah, but I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. 
And then Peter's like, may that never be. That's never going to happen. If you grew up in church, you know what happens next, right? Get behind me, Satan. And Jesus rebukes Peter. And he says, you don't know the things, the, things, the ways of God. And then Jesus all of a sudden goes on this speech about how if you follow him, you also have to carry your cross. And the reason why that's happening is because Peter, when he thought when he was going to follow Jesus, he thought like, man, this, this is the Messiah. I'm going to receive glory. There's going to be a lot of like privilege that comes with this. And Jesus is like, that is not the plan at all. That was your plan, but that is not the plan for your life if you follow me. I think that's actually true for a lot of us. When you first believe in God, if you become a Christian, a lot of us here, you believe in God, you got baptized, and you go, man, now I have all these plans and I have a God who could like just be there with me. I'm going to pray to this God to help me with these plans that I have. But what actually has to happen when you follow Jesus is you have to learn that that might be your plan, but God has a totally different plan for you. Like your agenda is out the window. There's a new agenda that God is writing for you. And that's the only way you're going to understand what this is what it means to follow Jesus. Years ago, I went on this trip to Vegas because one of our friends, they lost their job. And I was like, hey, you know, there's good food in Vegas, so let's go. So me and a group of friends, we went. And I planned the trip. I wrote this itinerary of like, hey, we should make sure we eat these at the buffet, let's hang out at the strip, and then let's make sure we um, go and swim at this pool area. I bought this ticket to the show, and I said the show would be like this great show that I just researched. And we went to Vegas, and I remember on the way there, I was sharing what we're planning to do. And one of the people in that group was like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Like, we're like, no buffets. Like, and he just said, let's go to this restaurant over here, off the strip. This show that I bought the tickets, like, we got to return that. Like, that's a really bad show. He said, let's watch this show. And so he just like changed my itinerary because he went to Vegas a lot, for business trips, he just knew how to have fun in Vegas for us. And man, it was fun. Like, it was way better than my plans. Like, I was not insulted at all because he knew what he was doing. And in some way, this is the frustration of our life where you have an itinerary for your life. You feel like for you, oh yeah, I'm going to retire at this company, but when it doesn't happen, you're like, what, what's going on? Or you feel like this relationship's going to be lifelong and it's, it's not. Or this is a time I should be having kids, but I'm not having kids right now. Like, what's going on? Because you have an itinerary for your life. And what God's doing is, no, 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 that's, that's not the way it's going to be. I have an itinerary for you. I have the timing of what's going to happen for you. That's what it means to follow me. But here's, the, here's the, the, save, the silver lining. His itinerary is way better than yours. He knows, he knows way better what you need to do where you need to go. It may not make sense, but that's what it means where you're, you're, it's not him following you, you are following him. You have a new agenda. But lastly, it's not just a new identity or a new agenda when you follow Jesus, but the last thing he gives us is you gain a new hope, a new hope. And in chapter nine, verse one, look what Jesus says to end this section. He says, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Jesus is saying, hey, follow me, follow me. It's hard Residency is challenging. It's going to feel like dying, but it's not forever. There's a greater kingdom that's coming. There's a kingdom that's going to be there that's going to come in power. And Jesus wants us to remember that. And it's so important to remember that, to live in this life. When I graduated college, all my friends had girlfriends, like right after college. And we all would meet up and be like, they brought their girlfriends. And I was that guy, the guy in the back passenger seat, you know, the fifth wheel. And they would just hang out. And I remember sometimes they kind of like, they kind of look at me like, oh, you okay? Like, we know some nice people. Do you wanna, want us to connect with you, with this person that I know? She's really nice. And every time they do that, I'm like, I'm good. I was like, no, I'm good. I'm cool. I am so content. And the reason why is not because I was godly. It's because I actually met somebody. I met Lena, my wife. I had met her. and I didn't tell anybody. She was, some of you know the story. She was in China for a year. 
but I just had, I had someone that I had a, like some type of feelings for. And so when people would ask me, oh, are you okay? I'm like, I'm totally cool because I had a greater hope in China <laughs> awaiting me. And it just made me feel like totally cool, totally content. I mean, of course, there's like bouts of loneliness and so forth, but I knew that there was something that was coming and it's all good. I could endure just being that fifth wheel because I had a greater hope waiting for me. And this is what Jesus is saying for you. To follow him means there's a kingdom that is coming. And this kingdom is not just something you wait for, but it brings you this type of contentment that the world cannot give you. And so, is this you? Do you believe that you have a new identity in Christ? Do you believe you have a new agenda, a new hope? You know what happens if that's really real to you? Whatever happens in your life, you know how you respond to disappointments, to setbacks, to hurts? The response is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit. You respond like, that sucks, but you know, it's all good. There's like this peace that's just in you. And if you keep responding that way, what happens? You become a person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And here is the problem. A lot of us, we believe in Jesus, but you are the opposite of that. You are not filled with peace and joy. You're filled with anxiety. You are filled with anger right now. You are filled with fear. We are filled with sadness. Because for a lot of us here, even though we believe this to be true, it's just not real to us yet. And that's why it's really important, again, where Jesus says, don't just believe this. Don't just agree with this. But follow me into this, he says. Follow me and I'll lead you to understand how to get deeper in this. I will show you how to get peace, love, joy. I will show you your new identity and what it means to adopt that into your life. And we do this with this last point, which is we got to practice. That's why we have to practice. What does it look like to practice following Jesus? It's hard in the middle of a crisis to follow Jesus, to all of a sudden just pull out love, joy, peace. It doesn't really happen easily. And this is where for us, this is where something called the practices of Jesus, or if you grew up in the church, spiritual disciplines just really help. Uh, spiritual discipline practices, it's on the screen here. Just for, our church went through this already where, um, oh, next slide. Actually, forget it. We're going to put this slide. Um, the, it's pretty much the lifestyle of Jesus, his template. What did Jesus do? And we went through a whole sermon series. Jesus, he was in the scriptures. He was always praying. He was always fasting. And the reason why, because for him, this is how the spirit enters into your life. How the spirit forms you. Because just know, if you don't respond well to disappointment or breakups, and you're like angry or sad, that's very normal. That's natural. That is the natural human response. And that's why you need something supernatural to respond with peace to that to respond to joy with that. But for a lot of us here, we don't do that. We don't have anything supernatural. You are not depending upon the Spirit's power. You're depending on willpower to get you going. And that only gets you so far. And so for us, what we have to do, what our call is to follow Jesus, is we follow his template of life every day. We channel the Spirit to just give us the supernatural power each and every day. And slowly and surely, we are just growing in the influence under the Spirit. Slowly just developing these spiritual muscles to get ready to face the realities of life. A few weeks ago, our church, they started playing basketball in the gym, and they invited me. I was like, really? You invited me? This old guy? Like, all right, let's do it. And so I went to the gym. So fun. Like, there's all running. We're going up and down. Really chill game. I did three pickup games. I have not been back since. That was like a month ago. My knee, like I still, it's still messed up 
from four weeks ago. Like, and I didn't even run that hard. It was just like this normal thing. And I realized like, oh my gosh, like I'm getting old. And I would tell people like what happened. They're like, you're not getting old. You're just not in shape, man. Like, what are you doing? And it's actually true. I haven't played basketball since Judah was born. Like a real game. That's like eight years ago. Like a pickup game. It's been eight years since I played a pickup game. In fact, I never even regularly shot a ball. Probably since my second daughter, my, my daughter was born, Emma. That was like six years ago. In fact, I don't even run regularly. That's just like, I don't think I've ran in a long time. In fact, I don't even walk. I'm just sitting on my computer all day. So for me to go from that to playing a pickup game, I like traumatized my body. My body's like, what is going on here? I just was not ready for that. So if I ever want to play basketball again, what I need to do is I need to start walking maybe a little bit regularly. Maybe start jogging, doing a little exercise. Maybe start shooting a little bit. Maybe play a little bit half court and then I might be ready for full court. That takes practice. And this is what we need too. You don't handle the crises of life well when you don't practice. You don't handle disappointments well when you don't practice. You're just going to rely upon willpower. But the Spirit of God needs to just be there every day in your life to slowly build you up, slowly build you up, slowly strengthen you. And for a lot of us, this is where it's really problematic, where you, this power is accessible to you. The Spirit of God is accessible to you. This is not new for you, but we're just not accessing it. And that's why we're stumbling in life a lot. There's this interesting article. It was called The Kingdom of, Le- of Electricity by Dallas Willard. The Kingdom of Electricity. And Dallas Willard, he's a scholar and writer. He says he is old enough to remember the first time electricity entered his town. He lived in a time when there was zero electricity. So the way people would store their food, they just find ways to store it with no fridge. They wash the laundry with their hands. They had to make sure that if there's any type of lighting that was happening, they just depended upon the sun. Because once the sun goes down, everything goes down. But Willard, he lived in Missouri. It was on a farm. In his senior year in high school, he remembers this day where the power company came, put on the power lines, and boom, electricity in the whole town, electricity for the farm. And he says this interesting quote. It's on the screen up here. He says this, when those lines came by our farm, a very, uh, a very different way of living presented itself. Our relationships to fundamental aspects of life Daylight and dark, hot and cold, clean and dirty, work and leisure, preparing food and preserving it could then be vastly changed for the better. Everything changed with the accessibility of electricity. And yet the ironic part was so many people didn't use it. So many people did not buy a fridge. So many people did not buy a laundry machine. So many people still leaned on the sun for sunlight. You know why? Because they were just used to their ways. And even though that way was a way harder way of living, they were just complacent. They're just like, well, we're just going to do it without electricity. Can you imagine somebody today living with no electricity when they have an electric outlet? Insanity. Your life would be so challenging. And yet Willard says, you do that all the time. You do that all the time. You have access to power, the power of the Spirit. You have access to these ordinary ways to be filled with something of power greater than you. But you are living your life without electricity. You are responding and living each and every day without a fridge, without a laundromat. You're just choosing to use your hands. And no wonder you're anxious. No wonder you're tired. No wonder you're depressed. Because we are, again, relying upon willpower when there is a power of electricity just offered to all of you through the Spirit. And that's where Willard, I love this quote that he says. He says, the cost of discipleship, it is high. It's high. But the cost of non-discipleship is even higher. It's even higher for you. 
I know for me personally, I've been so burdened by the war in Israel. Like I'm a dad. And so when I just read these like crazy stories that's going on, I'm just like, dude, it just like breaks my heart. I'm sure like if you're a parent, even if you're not a parent, you just read that. And I'm really honest, like I showed this to other people before. When I see the war, like I have moments where I kind of question like, is God good? Like, do I really believe God is good? Like, is he sovereign over this? Like, can I say with a clear conscience to a person who's not a Christian, like, God is sovereign and good, even in Palestine, even in Israel. To me, to be honest, when I look at that situation, the news, I question it. But this is where I'm so thankful, where, you know, the story of the Bible, it's just like in my brain. Our church, actually, we read, read through the entire, uh, the entire New Testament this past year. And that practice, it just kind of gave me these lenses where I'm like looking at now Israel and Palestine. I'm like, dude, that's really bad. When I look at the story of scripture, this is literally the story of scripture, what we're seeing right now, where there's a world that's broken, filled with people who are violent and angry and want justice. That's actually vengeance that's going on. But the story of scripture says, but there is a God who has not abandoned this world. There is a God who actually promises to redeem and make it into something beautiful. It started with the promise through Abraham. It's being fulfilled. It was fulfilled through Jesus Christ at the beginning of it. It is being fulfilled as the spirit moves right now. And one day it will be fully, fully finished when the kingdom comes. And when I see what's going on right now with that lens, I don't respond with anger to the news. I don't respond with despair, but there's like hope. There's like longing that happens when I see that. But that only happened because I'm just filled with the story of scripture because each and every day, the practices are just there. What does stage two look like for you? How can you practice following Jesus right now in your life? We're all at different stages. And let me close with this. Some of you, you believe in Jesus, but your life is just filled with anxiousness right now. Or it's filled with anger, or you're just really sad. And it might be because, dude, you have no electricity in your life. You have like zero power that's going on. You've never had a season where you consistently prayed. You've never had a season where you consistently read through the scriptures. You don't even know what people are talking about when they do that. And what I encourage you is start small. Start small. Some of you know what to do. Others, you have no idea what to do. Follow our church. Our church, we always focus on one practice. This past year is reading through the Bible together. We are still doing that right now with a Bible plan. Join us. Next year in 2024, we're going to do another practice. Join us one at a time, slowly at your pace, slowly by that fridge, slowly access power for you. Some of you, you're a little bit different where you've done the whole Bible reading prayer thing before, but that was like in college. And the reason why you stopped you did it for like two years. You stopped because it just wasn't life-giving. It was boring. You're busy now. And again, I totally get that. But uh, this is where it's really helpful to remember that things take time. You know, Mary, I heard, this from a ther- I heard someone say this from, about therapists. The therapist was saying that married couples, you become one when you get married, but you actually really feel like you're one at like year seven. Year seven is like when marriage, you enter in a different level. You're like kind of like figuring things out. Marriage isn't that fun those first seven years, but year seven, it's like this new wave of like maturity happens and this, something gets unlocked where you start enjoying each other like for this really interesting deep way. But you have to be intentional those whole seven years. For a lot of us here, you experience one year with Jesus and you think it's boring. One year reading your Bible, you go, oh, I've read all I could. You haven't even started it takes seven years, seven years of boredom, 
Seven years of like discipline, seven years of obligation, and something happens where all of a sudden the deepness and goodness of God just starts to appear in those practices. And for some of us, it might be, you know, yeah, maybe you did for two years, you've been stopping for a long time, pick it back up again. Grow that marriage, become one. And lastly, for some of you, you are already in stage two. You read your Bible, you pray, you worship, you're in the practices, but something still feels a little bit dry. And that might be a few of us who are here. And if that's you, it might be because God's calling you to a new season. It's on the screen right here. You're called now to do something different. Maybe instead of reading your scriptures only, keep reading it. But now God's calling you to do something, to live, to grow, to serve, to meet those who are in need. And next week, we're going to talk all about that stage. But as I invite the praise team up, can I just encourage us to take a moment to pause and to pray? Where are you at? Are you following Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus who's not following Jesus? What are some ways you could begin to follow him? Again, for some of you, this is, you just never move from the spot that the trail began. And this is Jesus' invitation for you to come follow him. Maybe for some of you here, this is a moment where, man, you stopped mid-trail because it just got boring. This is just an invitation where Jesus is inviting you, come start the trail again with him. And for some of you, there might be a new way where we have to follow Jesus, where it's been, yeah, we've been walking, but we're tired and we just need a different type of strength. But if we could take a moment to pause and just be still and to be really honest in our examination of where are we and asking the Lord's help and strength of where we could move and how we can move forward. So let's take a moment to pause and pray and then I'll lead us all together in a closing prayer.